You're listening to Season 7, Episode Number 6 of Strike the Match. A great deal of tension and conflict exists within the United Methodist Church. On this episode, my guest is Paul Lawler, Senior Pastor of Christ Church Birmingham, a United Methodist Church in Alabama. Our conversation took place in the fall of 2021, in which we discussed some of the present realities and future directions of the denomination. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Back in 2012, when my family and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I became one of the pastors with the church at Brook Hills, uh, David Platt, who was a senior pastor at the time, he said, J.D., you need to get to know this guy in town. His name is Paul Lawler. He is the pastor of uh, Christ Church Birmingham, which is a United Methodist Church. And I had the wonderful opportunity sure after, uh, soon after that uh, to have a chance to meet our guest that's on the program today. And Paul has just become a great friend over the years. I, I love this brother. I so much appreciate his ministry. I've had him to speak to my classes. Uh, I am just, just so thankful that he has given us his time today to be able to spend some time talking to us about a very uh, significant and very serious issue uh, that is taking place, and it has been going on for quite some time uh, within his denomination. And so it is an honor to have Paul Lawler, the senior pastor of Christ Church Birmingham, with us today on Strike the Match. And so, Paul, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being with us. Well, J.D., it's an honor to be with you, and uh, uh, thank you for those kind words. Uh, I have a deep uh, appreciation and respect for your leadership and your influence in the kingdom of God. Uh, Christ Church Birmingham has benefited uh, greatly from your ministry. I would remind you, we've had you on our campus for camp and speaking at conferences we've hosted. Uh, and I also have enjoyed fellowshipping with you uh, as well as spending time with your classes uh, at Beeson Divinity. And so thank you for uh, the mantle you uh, wear and carry so uh, faithfully, J.D., and it's an honor to be with you. Well, you, you're you're a very kind brother. Um, I, I think that uh, when I spoke uh, on your all's property, I, I think I ended up, you know, like causing you all to lose about 60 or 70 percent of your membership, <laughs> didn't I? So. No. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> so, well, I, I am so delighted that you've given us your time uh, together, uh, brother. So you've been You've been a church planter. You are a Bible teacher. You have been with uh, the church uh, here in the city since uh, 2007. You're a graduate of Asbury University and Asbury Theological Seminary. And um, I, I want to just ask you, for, for our listeners that may not know uh, about you or about the congregation, could you tell us a little bit more? Give us a little bit more information about your, your ministry and the, fel and the fellowship that you uh, get a chance to pastor. Yeah. Thank you, J.D. I, I came to Christ in my early 20s. I was somewhere between being a vague deist, uh, mildly or, or agnostic. Um, I, our family dabbled a little bit in the New Age movement, and uh, I was uh, searching. But what I did not realize is that God was in pursuit of me. I was converted, was alone in my bedroom, and um, I hit my knees to thank 
the God that I wasn't even sure that I believed in. And when I hit my knees, uh, God came and um, um, I was born again. And um, and I out of that uh, went back to church. Um, and at that in that United Methodist Church in the small the, in Gunnersville, Alabama, uh, the church happened to be pastored by a man who loved Jesus deeply, held to the authority of Scripture, and he began discipling me. And I I began to soak in a Scripture. I was a student at the University of Alabama. I transferred uh, to Asbury University shortly after that, um, as I followed the call of God on my life. Fast forward, we planted a church in Huntsville, served her for 16 years, been married for 38 years. We have four adult children. And then in 2007, um, in with the backdrop that we had said to the Lord, Lord, we will serve you anywhere in the world but Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> and uh, God, in his sovereignty, orchestrated a circumstance where we were involved pray about coming here, and it became quickly apparent that God was leading us uh, to leave the church we had planted. We love those people deeply, um, but to move here in 2007. When we came here, uh, we Christchurch Birmingham was uh, a redirect of an, inst- of an existing church, and so uh, our leadership, I'm going to give the short version for your lead- leaders, or excuse me, for your listeners, many of whom are leaders, um, but our leadership spent uh, about almost a year praying and searching the scriptures, asking what is the mission of God. I uh, had a couple of outside consultants journey with us, and um, we landed with this mission statement, which I know violates the can it fit on a t-shirt rule, but here it is. Uh, we exist to glorify God, treasure Jesus Christ, love others, and make disciples of all peoples. And we committed uh, to plant a uh, hundred churches around the world that was later tweaked to also send out a hundred missionaries from our, our church family to reach unreached people groups around the world. Uh, we committed to a 25 year commitment to a segment of inner city Birmingham. And then we committed uh, to raising up and developing 150 people in sustained patterns of making disciples who make disciples. We've trained hundreds of people uh, but yet it, it's that sustained pattern of, dis, of being committed uh, to disciple disciple multiplication uh, that's the key. And so um, out of that, uh, I've had the honor, the deep honor of serving as the lead pastor of Christ Church Birmingham now. I'm in my 15th year. So uh, thank you for the good question, JT. So if I recall looking at your, your website along the lines of, of that vision, uh, the, the progress of what the Spirit has been doing in and among uh, that faith family is just just fascinating. I mean, I, the number of missionaries have been sent out. I think it mentioned you know, like 20 on the website. I don't know how, how old those numbers are. Uh, like 100 or 730 churches being in, you know, in the process or have been planted since your work and past yes. decade in, in East Lake and like 74, you know, disciple making disciplers that are multiplying themselves have been equipped. I mean, that is just, just fascinating in just a short period of time. Yeah. And we, you know, we all thank God for his grace and for um, many who have, uh, you know, poured into this church and not to, J.D., not to flatter you, but you and many others have also been a part of, you know, taking what God has deposited in your own heart and mind and 
and helping to equip people so that by God's grace, we could posture to join God in what God's doing around the world. And so, um, you know, we, we do, we thank God, but, um, but that's, as we all know, was only by virtue of him stirring gifts and graces uh, so that we might follow him in loving obedience. So, uh, amen. Yes, amen to that. Uh, Paul, one of the reasons that, um, well, I'd say the main reason that you, you know why I wanted you to come on to uh, the um, the podcast today to have this conversation is related to uh, more of the recent developments within your denomination, the United Methodist Church. Uh, over the past uh, two or three years in particular. And, um, you know, and you feel free to comment because I don't want to put words into your mouth, but but I know, and I'm, I guess I'm sp- particularly speaking to the listeners because I've shared a little bit of my heart with you on this topic. Um, you, you know, I, I recognize there are differing perspectives that are out there. This is a very sensitive issue for some. Some are very excited. Some are very troubled. And so, you know, even people that I disagree with, you know, I, I want to... I want to be respectful. Uh, at the same time, I want to acknowledge, you know, the realities that are out there, and 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 things need to be called, you know, what they are and described as they are. And so, I I'm an outsider from your your tribe, Paul. I mean, I'm I'm Baptist of the Southern tribe, as I like to say. And so, as an outsider, I, I want to be really really cautious. But I wanted to have you on because you are an insider. And um, could you just take a moment, maybe before we jump into our conversation, and maybe share kind of your heart on this topic before we move any farther? Yes, yes. And and first of all, thank you for not only the question, but I hear the spirit in which you're asking the question. Um, many of you, many of our listeners, your listeners know that Methodism began uh, really in as very gospel centered. Uh, many of many know about Wesley's conversion experience on Aldersgate Street, um, and know that he testifies of his heart being strangely warmed as he came to know Christ. Romans eight, his spirit witnesses with John Wesley's spirit that he is a child of God, based upon um, some of the keys that flow out of the Reformation, which was salvation by faith and, and by by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and so. Uh, and, and out of that, we also know that uh, revival um, is, is a part of the characteristic, not only of the early Methodist movement, but actually throughout the history of the Methodist movement, there have been uh, multiple moves, powerful moves of the Holy Spirit, where critical masses of people have come to know Christ and grown as his disciple and grown in, disciple, in uh, sanctification and also express missional pulses that have been worldwide. But where we are today, uh, to sum it up in two uh, primary uh, trajectories, is this. We are in, in the United Methodist Church, in a constitutional crisis and a theological crisis. We're in a constitutional crisis because we have persons in leadership, um, bishops and other people in places of authority, that are uh, living not only in violation of our Constitution, which is called the United Methodist Book of Discipline, but also enabling and empowering others uh, to violate the bylaws uh, or our Constitution as Mm -hmm. a church. So so the rationale, before we talk about theology, is that if you were working for IBM or Apple or Google, and you just walked in one day and said, you know what, I'm not going to abide— by any of the bylaws in the employee manual any longer, that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so 
So one, we have that issue that we're navigating as a denomination, and it has caused a great deal of heartache and even chaos in places. Secondly, we have a theological crisis. And the theological crisis that you hear in the news, uh, the way it's characterized in the news is often only in the context of how the church will define marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, J.D. very graciously said, you know, we want to honor and love people well as followers of Jesus, no matter how they may see uh, particular issues. But underneath the hood, um, our, our theological crisis is rooted in how we view the authority of Scripture. And so there are many of us that we consider ourselves to be traditionally orthodox in perspective in how we view the authority of Scripture. This is actually the majority of United Methodists around the world, and that would include United Methodists in Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Europe, uh, into, into Russia, Latin America as well, um, hold to a what you would consider a traditionally orthodox perspective on the authority of Scripture. But many, unfortunately, from my perspective in North America, do not hold that same perspective, thus um, are committed to moving to the church to a place where we would redefi- redefine um, uh, the definition of marriage. And for many of us, that, that violates um, uh, what, how the scriptures mm-hmm. describe marriage, um, not, only, um, not only in its uh, definitions that we find both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I, and I'm referencing Genesis uh, 2, as well as Jesus in Matthew 19, but um, but uh, it, but also this is this is also a departure from how the global church, the church for 2,000 years, has seen this issue based on Scripture. So, right. so that those issues. Um, and all it represents underneath are, are, have, have brought us to a point where we recognize that the divides theologically are so deep that it's, it's not possible for us to all live under one denominational umbrella together. Right. Uh, uh, and so we realize that things have, have uh, they've come to a head. Mm-hmm. So let me pause there, J.D., and I, I appreciate how you have uh, delineated this for us to think about it on the constitutional level, the policies that have been in place historically and have been agreed upon, and then also on the theological level. Um, and and from from an outsider looking in, that you know that has also been my observations as well. In fact, uh, I cannot remember uh, uh, who said it, but at one of the the recent. Um, denominational gatherings, uh, a great deal of the pushback that came back came out of the majority world church against much of what was being advocated from U.S. North American-based leadership, um, I believe was pushed back over theology. However, I heard on, I think it may have been NPR, one of the leaders said uh, the issue is over contextualization that the majority world church, they're just in a different context. They see the Bible differently. However, we here in the States, we're in a different context. We see the Bible differently. So it's a contextualization issue. And my immediate thought, I remember where I was when I heard it on the radio, was no, it's a its a theological issue over basically what the Bible is saying. 
Yeah, and JD, that, that's a really good insight. And you're illustrating a part of why there is a divide, because there are persons who want to make it a contextualization issue, don't see scripture as having authority in the same way right. that a traditionally orthodox person would. And so therefore, that's that illustrates a, a part of the divide. One of the things our African, one of our African leaders said on the general conference floor uh, a quadrennium ago, or over a quadrennium ago, is this, that uh, he's saying to the Western church, the gospel that you brought us 100 years ago is not the same gospel you are proclaiming today. Mm. And so, uh, he, and what he was doing was challenging the Western expression of the church in United Methodism to reflect on the fact of what's happened to you two degrees at a time, mm. that uh, you have shifted from holding to the authority of Scripture in the way that you held to it a hundred years ago, in the way you taught our foremothers and forefathers. And so, um, hence, uh, it enhances his what he stated on the conference floor, really enhances your comment around uh, contextualization, because he was he was challenging us to assess our perspective and um, did that in a very both eloquent and, and a respectful way, I might add. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing to to look at how, you know, society shift and culture changes over time and to think about the contextualization, you know, of a message to contextually ap- apply the principles. It's another category to move into the realm of accommodation or what, you know, missiologists have referred to as syncretism, whereby we we allow the society to to dictate you know the, the you know what the word says as opposed to allowing us to bow to what the word says to us jd that that's so good and and and, as, and and one of the things in the western church right now and this certainly transcends uh, my tribe I, I think i think what we want to be cognizant of is that we're aware that the culture well let me rephrase it Culture disciples, it will disciple mm, yes, you. Yes. And 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 we're at a stage, this has always been true, but we just know it's all the more true right now. Uh, that there are places where the culture is discipling the church rather than the church discipling the culture. Mm, that's a good point. And so we're 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 at a place where we need an increase of God's radiance and light and will and way working in our hearts and our minds in the Western church. And um, uh, so, and, and that I believe transcends. Uh, I think that's that's true for the capital C church in right. many ways. Right. West right now. Right, and I mean, I so much appreciate you bringing that up, Paul, because because all of us, you know, are always, you know, being pulled in that direction of accommodating, becoming syncretistic, and and we are always having to, you know, go back you know, allow the scriptures to speak to us, you know, repent where we need to repent and reorient our, ourselves, you know, according to, you know, to the, to the word of the Lord. Um, so, so we're, yeah, we're all, you know, being pulled in these different directions because you're right, you know, culture, you know, it transforms us, it transforms the church and, you know, the church yes. transforms culture. And, and, and so, uh, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what you have, what you have, um, given evidence to within your denomination is that so many of the brothers and sisters, uh, predominantly out of the traditionally Western context, have a very high view of the scriptures. 
That that is correct. Uh, very, and and we we all realize that there are dimensions um, in theological circles, um, inerrancy and fallibility, and there's there's a lot we can drill into. But but the the bottom line is that for a traditionally orthodox United Methodist, we hold to the primacy of Scripture, mm-hmm. uh, high view of Scripture. Yes. So in twenty twenty two. Uh, in the fall, the uh, the general conference is supposed to occur, and and from what I have read, it sounds like there will indeed be uh, be a, a separation that will occur. Is that correct at this point in time? Yeah, let, let me qualify a couple of things um, as you share that. Uh, at where things stand right now, that that is the hope, um, and we're we're aware that with the COVID Delta variant, Lambda variant, mm-hmm. uh, and here we are on this date right now. We recognize there are a lot of var- variables. Uh, we're encouraged that uh, the FDA just approved the Pfizer vaccine. That that actually changes some uh, a context for uh, applications of vaccine, at least in the U.S. But we have to recognize that United Methodism is global in nature. And mm-hmm. so uh, we hope that a year from now that vaccine uh, uh, availability and COVID uh, is not the force that it is now so that we all can meet together. And so I I need for uh, just validating the integrity of process, I need to validate that reality. So we hope and we are praying that we meet a year from now, which would be the end of August into the first week of September uh, for General Conference 2022. And at that gathering, uh, we would vote on uh, the passage of what's called the protocol. If it passes, and right now it has from uh, the varying constituencies in United Methodism, it still has majority support. And if it passes, it would set things in motion for a formal, formal and amicable uh, divide of the church, a mitosis, if you will, into the post-separation United Methodist Church, as well as what uh, we refer to as the global Methodist Church. She's not officially formed at this stage, but that would set things into motion for her official formation. Mm -hmm. And that would include, based upon discussions that are taking place, we believe that that would include the majority of United Methodists in Africa, it would include uh, large segments of United Methodists uh, in Eastern Europe, parts of Russia, uh, other parts of Asia, parts of Central and South America, and then uh, also uh, a, crit- a critical mass in North America as well. Uh, so uh, the new denomination has the potential, uh, when she's formed, of actually beginning um uh, as she launches and moves into a new future, uh, beginning with many millions of, of of persons that are a part of her, her new formation. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the protocol. I'm, I'm assuming that's uh, the, uh, the the resource. It's called Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. That is correct, and uh, I I was uh, I'm glad you brought it up, but I was trying to be cautious and not drilling into. <laughs> Uh, a lot of minutia for your listeners, well, but yes, it is. It is the formal document that's been negotiated uh, 
Ken Feinberg, who is a, a lawyer. He's actually a very gifted Jewish lawyer. And I, I only share that because he's an outside resource person mm-hmm. that came in and uh, in, in, con- in convening major constituencies within the United Methodist Church to negotiate a way for us to move forward and not go the path that other denominations have gone with the same dilemma mm-hmm. uh, in the, waging war in the courts and bringing reproach on the name of Christ. Right. And uh, and so uh, that's the context for that document. And so, you can do a simple Google search if you wish to read it. Yes, that's that's why I wanted to give the, the full title there. But at the same time, Paul, I wanted to look like I was really cool and I knew what I'm talking about. <laughs> Actually, I've got it written on my notes in front of me right here. So, <laughs> But yes, uh, if you're listening and you want to check that out, it's called The Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. So if you just do a simple Google search for something, Along those lines, you, you should be able to see that. Paul, let, let's talk a few moments about, you know, the what if. So so what if uh, the separation does occur? I mean, I mean, can, can you can you explain at this point in time uh, how that transition is going to happen, given given the, the diversity of leadership within the denomination, all of the, the physical properties, the educational institutions? I mean, who gets what? I mean, financially speaking, uh I know that there are people who have thought about this. What, what, how are things outlined? First of all, that's a, it's an excellent question. And what I'm going to do for the sake of your listeners, I'm going to intentionally fly 30,000 feet to give, give you kind of some bottom lines. Uh, first of all, the protocol gives each, if it passes each annual conference, which are regions, um, uh, within sections of the United States and, or, and central conferences around the world to vote on whether they would remain with the post-separation United Methodist Church or join the global Methodist Church or another established Wesleyan denomination. Now, there's more detail related to that than I'm going to give or dive into at this moment. If an annual conference or central conference did not vote to go with the Global Methodist Church um, and um, a local church, uh, for instance, wanted to join the Global Methodist Church, if your conference didn't, then a local church can vote to go and join the Global Methodist Church. So hypothetically, uh, here in North Alabama, if the North Alabama Conference, which we're a part of, did not vote to join the Global Methodist Church, Christ Church Birmingham would have the opportunity to vote to join the Global Methodist Church. Now, there are a lot of institutions and properties uh, associated with the United Methodist Church. And so let me address a couple of those matters very briefly. One, um, educational institutions. Um, There are 13 United Methodist seminaries. There are uh, numerous um, Methodist colleges and universities. Most of the colleges and universities are what we would call church-sponsored colleges and universities. This is distinctive from being a solely Christian university. And uh, if for drilling down into that a little bit, you might want to do, you could do some Google searches. But the church-sponsored universities and colleges 
would go with the post-separation United Methodist Church. Most of them have gone on record that they would do that. And so we want to validate uh, that reality. However, in the global Methodist Church, local churches uh, would own their own properties and buildings, which is not the case right now. Mm -hmm. There is what's called a property clause in the United Methodist Discipline. And at this stage, the United Methodist Church owns all buildings and properties, um, including the buildings and properties of local churches. So that would be a transition. Uh, The third thing, and again, very quickly, there are missional expressions through the United Methodist Church, um, but those missional expressions like United Methodist Committee on Relief, uh, our children's homes, uh, the Global Methodist Church would be free to continue to support those worthwhile ministries and others as we move into the future. A lot of details and uh, listeners, of course, uh, you know, as you all are praying for uh, our brothers and sisters uh, in the United Methodist Church uh, throughout the world, not just uh, here in the states, uh, we we also want to be praying for for things like what what Paul just you know gave us the big picture over because so many of those details, so much you know, financial resources, uh, so much tension that's there. And so let's let's keep that matter in our prayers as well as the other things that we're already praying for. Um, Paul, you are on an, on an exciting team uh, related to some of the things that are going on. Uh, you are in the process of uh, working with other uh, brothers and sisters on the development of, a, of really a, a global Great Commission exp, uh, expression uh, for the, the new denomination. Can, can you give us some information, some insight into what's happening there? Yeah, thank you. Again, another great question, J.D. But by the way, of all these questions, this is probably the one, other than my conversion, this is the one that excites me the most. Well, I'm sorry, um, Paul. We're I, out of I, time. I've got to turn you off now. So <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Go ahead. No, I'm excited about this too, no, brother. <laughs> you go ahead. Bring it on, bro. But, but um, I have the honor of chairing what's called the Global Missional Partnership Task Force of the new Global Methodist Church that is yet to be formed. But we are late establishment of future global missional partnerships uh, with uh, parachurch ministries and local churches to foster Great Commission movement from from everywhere to everywhere um, in advancing the cause of Christ and sharing the good news of, of Jesus and making disciples of all people groups, all nations. And uh, as J.D. recently cited, we're aware that out of the Korean mission, um, uh, there was a K- Korean mission uh, convention that 20,000 missionaries are emerging out of the Korean peninsula. This is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. But what it signals to us uh, is that the globe is awakening to, has a to her great commission uh, responsibility. So we're moving more deeply into this. And so a part of our task is that we are already in the deep in the minutiae of vetting and identifying global missional partners all around the world. Our team is working on this. And then we, as we're doing so, we're also developing what we what will be called the Wesleyan Network for Global Mission. And um, this team Uh, is identifying apostolic leaders all around the world who can be called forth to equip indigenous leaders in their own cultures, in best practices, 
in sharing the gospel, best practices in disciple-making, best practices in uh, church planting, all with a heart to cultivate disciple-making movement and church planting movement, uh, equipping uh, local churches all over the world in the best practices of evangelism and discipleship. Uh, JD has been very gracious in giving uh, also some uh, uh, insights to one of our sub-team chair, uh, chair people and Dr. Kim Reisman. She has collaborated with JD uh, around this particular issue, along with other thought leaders around the world. And also we're, we're, we're laboring uh, to develop uh, modules to equip local churches to become Great Commission churches. So as new church new churches are planted, that they're also equipping, being equipped in going from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, in in having a heart not only for their local community in expressing the gospel and disciple making and mercy ministry, but also in having a heart for the nations and having a heart for sending people and being a part uh, of joining God in His heart for all people. So. Uh, the, these really are exciting days. We're, we've got some pain to go through, but uh, we are passionate. And uh, might not, if I can use spiritual terminology here, we are awakened mm. for the possibilities of what God is doing and what God uh, may do as we mm. as we seek to follow faithfully in these days ahead. Paul, I am just so excited to to hear about that, to hear about the work that's going on long before um, you know, the, the potential meeting in, in 22. So if you all are out there and you didn't catch that, keep, keep keep on the lookout for, Lord willing, the Wesleyan Network for Global Mission, the the, the, the missiology, the theology, the the expressions of of engagement uh, dealing with uh, not only gospel proclamation, church planting, but uh, social matters as well. Uh, this is exciting, folks, and this is something that is that is very unprecedented uh, in our day and time. Uh, definitely um, within uh, the denomination as it has expressed itself in the twentieth and twenty first century. I mean, when you go back and you look in history, particularly uh, on the U.S. frontier, I mean, the, the expansion of the church uh, was heavily uh, around the work of the circuit-riding preachers and the, the Methodists that, that uh, followed uh, the, the paths around uh, the country as the explorers moved westward. And it's really interesting, and it'll be interesting to see in days to come, uh, just how the denomination— uh, as they move in this direction, uh, potentially under uh, the descriptions that you've, you've just heard Paul share about, uh, how they move in a direction that is that is in many ways replicating a lot of the things that uh, was a part of who they were from the very beginning and who they, from the very beginning, would claim go all the way back to the apostolic church and the work of Paul um, so, Paul, I am just uh, thankful that uh, you've been with us today, brother. And um, anything else that uh, we need to know before we let you go? Hey, but first of all, just just thank you. And and I'm aware you've got we've got people listening all around the world, and many of them are missionaries. And I before we close, JD, I just from my heart, I just want to encourage those that are on the front lines, whether they're here in Birmingham, around our nation, or around the world, um, there is a greater power available to you and in you than there is any obstacle before you. And I just want to, from my heart, just encourage you uh, to keep pressing forward and believing God 
uh, as you propagate the gospel, make disciples, and God's kingdom is advanced. And, and, but it's been an honor to be a part of, of this broadcast, J.D. Thank you. Our guest today has been Paul Lawler, who is the senior pastor at Christ Church Birmingham, uh, United Methodist Church. Uh, Paul and I have been talking about uh, some of the uh, matters of tension and transition that are happening within his denomination uh, across the world at this point in time. And so it has been wonderful uh, having Paul with us today. And Paul, brother, keep up the great work and Lord bless you in all that you do. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Payne. You can find JD on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at JD underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.